0: Please open your Bibles with me to the book of 1 Peter, right there toward the end of the New Testament. We just started a series in the book of 1 Peter last week, and, and we're here in now what is typically in a first century letter, the exhortation or the prayer section of the letter. And our text is specifically 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 12. You know that as natural people, these words of life mean nothing to us without God's help, so let's pray that He would help us as we come to read. Gracious Lord, thank You for speaking to us, and thank You also for applying the hearing by Your Spirit to our hearts. Would You be with us now in the preaching and in the hearing of Your Word, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in Your sight, O oh Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hear God's Word from First Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. Thus ends the reading of this portion of God's word. And for God's word, we say, thank you, Lord. When you're out at the store have you ever witnessed a child throwing a tantrum (laughs) see some parents saying no no way okay well imagine it's the third week of december and the kid sees a toy he wants on the shelf and he lets everyone know that he wants it his mother says no honey we're not going to buy that toy for you today it's christmas next week he's not having it he's offended He's hurt. He's lost control of the situation and he's lost control of his response, and nothing else in the world matters because he is overwhelmed by the difficulty of this situation. Sounds dramatic. To adults who have lived a few more years and gained some more perspective, it sounds like overreaction, but to the child, it was very appropriate. What makes this child inconsolable is his short-sightedness and his selfishness. He lacks perspective and patience. If he could remove himself from the pain and the emotion of the moment, he would see that Christmas is next week. We're reminded in our passage today that the Christian life is difficult. And often we respond like a child with no perspective. Our trials are going to be various and they're going to be grievous. And Peter encourages his readers, do not be like children in this way. Do not be short-sighted. Do not be selfish, but keep the perspective of eternity. And Peter deals here with the Christian life in three eras. He deals with the future of the Christian life. He deals with the present of the Christian life. And he deals with the past of the Christian life. And that's how we're going to look at the passage this morning, the future, and then work our way back to the present, and then work our way back to the past. As we look at the future of the Christian life, the charge for you and for me is to look up, to look forward, to look at heavenly realities, because we as Christians have a future. There are great things coming for Christians It's a comfort to hear. And you may remember Peter's recipients are living in a world where they are facing impressive trials. They are not welcomed into culture. They have ideological differences, massive schisms between themselves and their neighbors because their neighbors don't trust in Christ. And we also have trials that are wearing us down. And this good news of the future of the Christian hope is a comfort to us as well. Peter's recipients are wondering whether they'll have jobs that pay the bills in their new location in Asia Minor, and they, and they wonder whether the culture's opposition to their faith is going to get worse to the point where they're entirely rejected or they're under the threat of bodily harm. And not long after this, it seems, Nero would do such persecution to Christians. Peter identifies these recipients with the Old Testament covenant people of Israel as the new Israel, as the church, as those who cling to Christ. But they're wondering, are the blessings of God toward his people also fading into imperceptibility? We can't see it. So is there no more blessing from God? And this passage reminds us with a resounding, no, God's blessings have not disappeared. God's blessings still stand for his people. Peter defined them as those who are related to God. Foreknown by God, elect by God, they are being sanctified in the Spirit. We see this in verses 1 and 2. And they're being washed in the blood of Jesus, welcomed into the new covenant by which they are reconciled to God on the grounds of Jesus' merits. And all those Old Testament promises and blessings of the land and of abundance They have now come to the new Israel, to those who believe in Christ, as they receive the spiritual fulfillment in abundance of all those Old Testament foreshadows. Old Testament was anticipating these blessings in this land, in this abundance. But it was just a foreshadow of the true spiritual blessings that we have in Christ that God has kept for his people. And there's a salvation that is ready now, Peter says ready to be revealed. And we stand in the same era as the recipients of this letter in that we too await the revelation of that inheritance. Let's talk about that inheritance. This is an inheritance in verse 4 that Peter describes as imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. When we hear the word inheritance, we think uh, often of the single largest gift received by a person in their lifetime. And it can come, and often it'll change your status from financially um, in, in hardship to financial abundance, or it can come in the form of a new house or a new car or two. Sometimes, though, people inherit debt. But even if you do inherit great physical abundance, with that also comes thieves and moths and rust and death. Worldly inheritances. And wealth never last. And nor will the inheritors in an earthly sense. Peter is describing a very different class of inheritance. He's describing an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And it is not kept in an earthly safe. It is kept in heaven for you. And as it is imperishable, this means that it cannot be affected by death and decay. This inheritance that God has for his people will not die. And all the world may be destroyed, but this inheritance cannot be because it is kept in heaven. And this inheritance is undefiled. This is speaking of moral corruption. This inheritance cannot be corrupted. Sin will not rob you of your inheritance in the new creation and in heaven sin will be sin has been conquered and will be eradicated from God's presence and from his dwelling with his people and so therefore the inheritance he keeps for you in heaven is undefiled and undefilable sin has no claim and this inheritance is unfading you might inherit right now your dream object Maybe it's a piece of jewelry. Maybe it's a car. Maybe it's a house. But in a hundred years, who wins but rust and decay? The laws of entropy. This inheritance of which Peter speaks is unfading. There is no natural decay. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God and the inheritance that he holds for his people endures forever. Because it exists under the governance of Jesus Christ, the eternal Savior, the eternal King. Tell me one earthly inheritance that fits these descriptions. One thing that we strive after on this earth that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading. You cannot name one. Peter's reminding you that there is something so much better. There's something coming, and it gives great hope and encouragement. And he says, It is going to be guarded for you by Jesus, and it will come, and you won't miss it because he will keep you for it as well. This is why Paul tells his readers in Colossians to set their minds on things that are above where Christ is, where he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is secure, this is our future. And as it did for Peter's readers, this also brings us great comfort. And this is what Jesus spoke of when he says, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old. With a treasure in the heavens that does not fail. That's speaking of imperishable. Where no thief approaches, that's speaking of undefiled. And where no moth destroys, that's unfading. Jesus commanded us to set our treasures in those such things. And God has set aside that treasure for us. You might say, but what does the future have to do with today? It doesn't fix the hardships today. And in one sense, you're very right. It does not pull us out of the difficulty of life today. But it does help us to see it differently and to endure it differently because the future impacts today. That day is going to be defined by praise, That day is going to be a day of worship. Look at verse three. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now our English has chopped these verses three through 12 into a bunch of separate sentences. Peter wrote this as one long sentence. Starting in verse three, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the root of the rest of the verses. Everything else is dependent upon that. Everything else is a modifier of that. The whole point is that our future inheritance and the lives that we live today are all in service of the praise of our God. And as we can see ourselves worshiping Him perfectly on that last day for eternity, so we let that seep into our hearts today so that we live lives of praise today. As a child misses that Christmas is next week, we have to remind ourselves, Christmas is next week. And that gives us contentment and patience now as we remember there is an inheritance that is sure that is coming. That gives us confidence now even when things are really difficult. And it helps us to endure these difficulties with a hope. And as there is a destination that we know we are headed toward, it helps us to endure. All right, there are two ways I'm gonna ask you this question. First of all, how many of you want to go on an 11 hour car ride with your luggage cramming your elbows? Okay. Um, A lot of you might want to know, all right, first of all, what car are we taking? Uh, Who's going to be in the car and where are we going? In other words, is it worth it to endure these 11 hours in the car crammed in the back seat? Let me ask you a different version of that question. Who wants to go on vacation to Hilton Head? You see the difference. The way that you think about the destination affects the way that you think about the journey. The destination affects the journey. If there's no purpose in the end, then there's only self-invented purpose in the journey. Counting how many state's license plates you can find. Connecting the dots. Playing snake on the phone. I'm showing how old I am. If there's no inheritance for Christians, then we are of all people most to be pitied, for we have forfeited the treasures of this world. Our journey is difficult, and it is fraught with trials and with perpetual disagreements with the world's ideologies. It's a constant rub. The seat in the car does not have the best lumbar support as we are headed on our journey. There's a constant ache. Our charger cable was left at home and our phone has died and now we must entertain ourselves with things right here in the car with us. Can you imagine a vacation package titled 48 hours of layovers and economy class Legroom"? maybe with a beach destination? No, it's always advertised as Tahiti. White sand and sun. Yet so often you and I think of our lives as just the layovers and just the legroom and just the car ride. And we forget the destination. And we forget that we are going somewhere with abundance and blessing. Brothers and sisters, look up to where Christ is carrying us. We are weary. And I'm not talking about go to Hilton Head. I'm not saying to do that because as soon as you're back from Hilton Head, you need a vacation from your vacation. We're headed to a place where the rest is real, where we are filled up with real life. This destination of which Peter speaks, this inheritance, this rest will never disappoint. Let that expectation build for that day. Get your hopes up. It will not let you down. It is kept in heaven for you, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. So, that's the future. And it changes how we live today. Let's look a little closer now to our present. And so, we looked at the future. We're looking at the present. I've told you to look up. I'm also now going to tell you to look out. Not in a sense of warning, I'm saying look out from yourself. We so quickly look down and we focus in on ourselves and our situations. And our command from Peter here is to look outward. He says we are grieved, pained by various trials in verse six. Of course, his recipients are doing that as he writes to them. That's why he writes this, charging them to stand firm in God's grace. Despite the trials. And this grief that he speaks of as an emotional grief over things such as financial loss and difficult people in your life and the emotions over the brokenness of life on earth. And he describes this as necessary. He describes this pain and these trials as necessary. And there are a couple reasons that it is necessary. First, it's necessary because we're sinful. And we need the fire to burn off the impurities of our sinful selves. I always found it intriguing as a pottery student in, in college. I, I just took one class. Um, you take a mug or a vase or, or a bowl and you would fill it with balled up newspaper, sometimes to, to keep the structure or the, the, uh, the humidity right. And you put it in the kiln. And then 2,000 degrees later and two days later, you open up the kiln after it's cooled off and there is no more paper. It has been entirely burned up. And what's left is a vessel, a piece of pottery that exists as it was designed to exist, delicately standing as the potter intended, as, if, as long as it had withheld and not cracked under the heat. And so we, with all kinds of worldly and sinful crutches, we need those things to be burned out of our hearts so that we can be the holy, set-apart, obedient, Christ-like people that God has called His children to be. And so because we are sinful, it is necessary that God uses trials to purify us. It's necessary not because you have failed in your faith or because God is punishing you or because your faith is inadequate, but it is because by definition, we are at odds as those who exist under Christ's rule. We are at odds with the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And it's necessary because we serve a different king than the world does. And as he suffered, so he promised we would. And as he was mistreated, so he promised we would be mistreated. And I've said this before, but every time I say it, I don't necessarily, necessarily believe it in all of my being, so it probably won't hurt to say it again. Trials are not an interruption of the good life. Trials are not an interruption of God's design for his children, and nor do they have to push pause on our joy. It's not like we have to get through what's difficult in order to get back to praising God. No, we are joyful in our trials. And let me go so far as to say we are joyful for our trials. And we are joyful for the trials because they prove to us that God is holding on to us. And God is upholding our faith. And we know that he is using it to make much of Christ. We rejoice for our trials because we, when we endure them, we see our selfishness and our greed and our lies and our hatred of others and our love of sin, we see it falling off of our heart. Like the dirt that sifted through a sieve falls away to reveal the gemstone of the gospel of Christ. And we're no longer obscured by mixed motives or competitive loves. And sure, we won't get there before eternity. have to wait for Christ's reign when he returns in order to be made perfect. But there is great joy in growing in that holiness, and there is joy in the trial. And that's because of what Peter tells us we have a living hope. A living hope in verse 3, not a dead hope. The world is filled with dead hopes. Every advertisement is selling you a dead hope. Every social pressure is pushing you toward a dead hope and you will not only just be disappointed by following the schemes of the world, you will be destroyed by the schemes of the world. Hope for us sounds like a wishful word. Oh, I, I hope that next week when Christmas comes, Santa gives me a gift. That hope is wishful, but for Christians, our hope is not wishful. Our hope is confident. Our hope is secure. It is sure. And it is unfoilable. It is a guarantee from God. And that's the kind of hope that we have. And it is a living hope because it is based on a living savior, not a dying world. As we read in Isaiah recently, Israel was called out because they had placed hope in an idol that they made out of wood. And Isaiah says, all right, you you took a chunk of wood, you cut up some of it to burn a fire so you could cook meat and you carved an idol out of another and worshiped it. That's exactly what we do with the things of this world. We make things out of things and worship those things. How foolish that is. We have a living Savior instead. We don't hope in dead items, the product of human hands. We hope in a risen Savior who has conquered death, who has wrought salvation by His own hands. And His work is imperishable. It's rooted in an eternal God who is eternally faithful. It is undefilable for Jesus has conquered the foe. It is unfading. And for the eternity of the eternal life that we have been given in Jesus, we have living hope. And as we've alluded to, the fact that Christ is risen and the fact that we have a living hope creates living effects today. Christians, we are people of purpose and direction and patience and comfort, and joy, and eternal destination. This is not just optimism. This is not just wishful thinking. This is not just self-help. These are not empty lies. We're talking about living by faith. Peter mentions this in verses 5 and 7 and 8, this recurring theme of, of belief and of faith. And he says, even though you don't see Jesus speaking to his people, his people there in Asia Minor had not seen Jesus with their eyes. He says, even though you didn't see them, see him, you love him and believe in him and rejoice in him. They may not see with their eyes, but they have heard and therefore have seen with their hearts. They have heard. And this hearing the good news is crucial the things that they heard about Jesus, those are the things they latched on to. Christian faith is based on hearing. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of God. We must must preach this gospel. Faith comes by hearing and we will see. There's a day coming that we will see Jesus in all his glory. We will see the presence of God and be overwhelmed by his presence in the best way. And we will see that every ounce of stock that we put into God's word will be confirmed and we'll see him in all his glory and he'll make all these sufferings that we endure today pale in comparison. Back to the Hilton Head vacation. Don't you find often that you're planning the vacation and it looks amazing in your mind? The house, the beach, the meals. But as you're planning, you've forgotten what it really looks like sand gets everywhere and the cooler leaks and the sunburn and the kids nap schedules and the traffic and the lines at the restaurants and on and on and on and on because when we set our hopes in these earthly things we're setting ourselves up for disappointment because when they get here they will only disappoint look out from your lives and from your trials from your Stop looking at your miserable situation. For every look you take to yourself, take 10 looks to Christ. Look out from your ditch and see redemption in Jesus. When your sandwich comes to the table with tomatoes, and you ask specifically for there to be no tomatoes, you're upset at the incompetent fool who forgot your very clear instructions. Look out from your miserable ditch. And remember that there's something bigger going on. There is a future. There is a salvation. There is an incomprehensible inheritance headed your way. And the direction of your life isn't for your glory, but for God's. This is an oversimplification, but I'll go ahead and use the the illustration. There There are two types of old people. There are those who spent their lives being constantly chiseled away by the Holy Spirit's work. And their faces glow more deeply with every passing year, with joyful smiles. Not because life has gotten easier. In fact, life is a lot harder. But because they have been looking forward and they have been looking out from their lives and they are the most generous people you know because they have been looking to Christ and to assure inheritance. And there's another type of old person And it's the one who never learned that life isn't about them. They scowl and they murmur under their breath at the kids these days. And they demand a refund for their meal at the restaurant because it didn't pass snuff. And everyone else is a fool, so they think. And they haven't spoken to their brother in decades because of what he said in 1983. Every one of us is going to leave this sanctuary as an old person. Older than when you came in. And you'll return next week... An older person still. What kind of old person are you becoming? What kind of molding is going on in your heart? Are you letting your difficulties and your frustrating situations harden your heart against God's work as you keep holding on to your own glory with increased bitterness toward everything around you? Or are you rejoicing with joy that is inexpressible and filled with joy and Even though life has only gotten more complex and difficult, and your inheritance remains still just beyond your reach, yet you wait for it. I want to be like that second old person. I want to be the one who hopes in Christ and lets go of the bitterness and the difficulties of the journey. What's that core difference between the two? It's faith in Christ. It's the faith that makes us able to see that inheritance that's coming and it makes us able to see the giver in whom we rejoice. And you and I see glimpses of it in our Christian life as we gather around and hear God's word and partake of the meal together and fellowship together and share in the highs and share in the lows. These are glimpses of that day. And we also by faith are able to rejoice when things are really difficult and when things grieve us now because our hearts are being unlatched. From worldly lures that would otherwise drag us to death. And we wait with healthy expectation for God's merciful reign when Christ is revealed. So it doesn't matter what you're enjoying, what you're enduring today. It doesn't matter if you're comfortable or if you're suffering today. It doesn't matter if things are happy or difficult. Today is a day of rejoicing, of inexpressible joy, for we are being saved through fire a fire that purifies. And it purifies our faith so that it is uh, tested and, and proven genuine. You can take gold and burn it and all the dross burns off and you're left with pure gold. But if you heat it up hot enough, the gold itself is consumed. Faith that is rooted in Christ will not be consumed. All the dross will be burned off. And what's left is the most precious of treasures that a person can bring to the day of judgment. It's a faith in Jesus Christ that God himself has grown in their hearts by the joys and the trials of life. And that tested faith is greater than gold. It will receive a blessing of eternal life and it will proclaim the glory of God on that last day and forevermore. And this faith, as Peter says, loves Jesus. This faith loves Jesus. Do you love Jesus? Or do you love yourself and the world? And for Christians, we can say yes to both of those. Yes, we love Jesus, but we do still love the world. And we pray that God would continue to rip that love out of our heart so that these trials purify us so that our faith loves Jesus and Jesus alone. And we long for that day when we will see him. Because it will be far more satisfying than any physical inheritance or mansion or streets of gold. Even those things are just accents to that greatest inheritance of being with our God. And seeing our Savior face to face. And so we wait based on these promises of God's word that we have heard. And we look up. And we look out and remind ourselves of what God has done through Jesus again and again and again until we die. Let's now look back really quickly. We've looked forward to the future. We've looked at the present. Let's look back as Christians. Because some of you might be saying, this just sounds too good to be true. This can't actually be it. What's the catch? The reason this is all true is because it is rooted in the past. It's rooted, first of all, in God's character, which is not just past, but has been clearly revealed in the past. Peter tells us it's according to God's mercy that he has saved us. And we see in the first verses from last week's sermon that it's according to the love and the foreknowledge and the election of God. And it is rooted specifically in an historical moment in the past When Jesus, who lived perfectly, died and paid the penalty for our sins and gave us the hope of eternal life. That is the only reason that we have hope. That's the only reason there is an inheritance because of what Jesus has done. So if you are hoping for good things one day without putting your faith in Jesus, your hope is useless. Your hope is in Jesus alone and the fact that he has died and paid for your sins. And Peter reminds us very specifically, it's also the fact that Jesus has resurrected from the dead that secures this hope. It's the resurrection of Christ according to his great mercy. Verse three, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Believers have been united to Jesus. And as we have been united with Him, we die with Him in suffering as He died. And we rise with Him in new life as we will be raised glorious with Him on that last day. And His resurrection conquered His enemy, who is also our enemy, which gave us the surety of salvation. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. But because Christ has been raised, we have the greatest inheritance coming. We look back to these promises of God and realize that our hope, that we look up toward, that we look out toward, that we look back toward, is rooted in God's actions, not yours, not mine, not your parents' actions, but in God's actions by which He has caused us to be born again. This is a new identity that God has given to His people. He has caused his people to be born again. And that's such a strange phrase that even Nicodemus asked, how can I be born again from my mother's womb? And Jesus answers, you must be born of a new family, of the Spirit, a new identity. You must be adopted into this family. This is security in God's family when you are born again into this family. This is being loved. This is a new family with a new inheritance. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He explains that that being born again is of the Spirit, and so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. God, the Spirit, who is the Spirit of Christ, causes us to be born again. And by that action of His, He raises us to new life in which we can see the kingdom of God. We see His redemption at work. We see His character. And we see that inheritance that is kept in heaven for us. By God's power, we are being guarded through faith. That sounds like a passing phrase. By God's power, we are being guarded. If God is for you, who can be against you? What can separate you from the love of God in Christ? If you believe in Christ, God is keeping you for a salvation that will be revealed on that last day. You are already saved, but we have not yet seen the fullness of it. And we praise God that he will keep us in his power. Now, concerning this salvation, you might say, okay, well, this is one good way to get to heaven. I like this option. But maybe there are other options. No, there are not. First of all, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. But even if you believe that maybe the best religion is Christianity, you say, but I'm not exactly quite sure that this is all it's supposed to be. Peter reminds us in these last verses, 10, 11, and 12, this is that big of a deal. Because all the prophets for the millennium before Christ walked this earth were waiting for this moment. They cried out, how long, O Lord? They were waiting for the consolation of Israel like Simeon was. Simeon filled with the Holy Spirit. He finally, as he had longed with Israel to see that salvation, he finally held that baby Jesus the incarnation of the Son of God, and he cried out, O Lord, now I can depart in peace, for I have seen your salvation, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Everything has been building to this. Okay, well, they're just people. But Peter says, even the angels... Even the angels long to look into these wondrous truths of the gospel that we've received in Jesus. These truths to which we look up, to which we raise our eyes from ourselves and look at, and the truths that we look back on in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. These mysteries through which God guards us for eternity are the things that angels long to look into. Christ has not identified with the angels by becoming an angel. He has identified with mankind to save us. And these are deep mysteries that even the angels long to understand. The angels who rejoice when one's soul repents, those who are keeping watch over God's children, they rejoice when one's soul repents and trusts in Jesus, and they long to look into this gospel that was preached by Jesus and by his apostles that we find written in God's word. These very words that we read in 1 Peter today are those things of infinite worth. Leave all that you have and come and follow Jesus. Look up to the inheritance. Look out from your own situation and look back at what Jesus has done. Look up, look out, look back, repeat until that inheritance is yours and your soul is saved and your faith has been proven genuine, resulting in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is coming. And we say, come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for this salvation. We praise you that you have secured an inheritance for us. That you have given us faith and a living hope for today rooted in these secure acts of Jesus Christ in history. We pray that these would be our theme and we would give praise to Jesus, our Savior, by your spirit. In Jesus name we pray. Amen.